I have always loved summer camp and camping. It's this perfect combination for me of the outdoors, hiking, stargazing, quiet. However, there's this one part that I've always hated, especially as a kid. And that is inevitably, each night at the end of our day, we would gather around the campfire. And every single time, someone would start telling a story. You know the ones. The stories about ghosts, serial killers, maniacs, monsters. And y'all, I hated them. I have this uncontrollable imagination, you see, especially as a kid. And these campfire stories were just perfectly designed to scare the bejeebus out of me. They had this pattern that got me every single time. We would gather around the fire, someone would start talking, and they always started the same way, with the familiar. A normal person like me, in a normal setting, doing normal everyday things. Something relatable, easy to connect to. Someone getting ready for bed. Or, more often, a group of kids sitting in the woods around a campfire. And they start making you think, oh, hey, that's what I'm doing right now. From there, the story would seemingly meander. Just someone going about their all-too-relatable activities, brushing their teeth, getting ready for bed, you know, getting wood for the fire. Nothing strange here, the story would try to tell you. And in hindsight, this is the trap of these stories. You see, the normalcy of it is designed to lull you to sleep and make you feel comfortable. It starts safe because what it really wants to do is get behind your defenses and trick you into letting it into your imagination, to trick you into entering into its world. And spoiler, that means it's got you. Because once you're drawn in, as always, something strange would happen and tension would begin to slowly build. There would be tapping on the window, but no one's there. The campers hear rustling in the dark woods. It's probably a raccoon. Wait, didn't Jimmy go to the bathroom five minutes ago and not come back? But it's, it's fine. He's probably okay. You know, because this story is just a normal camping experience. And at this point, you may start to feel uneasy, but you're invested. You're leaning in. You can't turn back now. And without fail, bam. When you least expect it, the story takes a hard turn into the grotesque, the terrifying, the frightening. It always leaves you thinking afterwards, I should have seen that turn coming, but you never do because that's what it was designed for. It was designed to lull your defenses, lull you to sleep for this very moment so it can shock you, surprise you, and make you scream. The maniac was the one tapping on the window, and now he's in the house. The ghost, vampire, zombie, bear, monster, you know, whatever it is, was the one making all that rustling in the woods. It ate Jimmy, and now it's in your tent, and the breeze that you thought was on the back of your neck, it's actually it's breath, and ah! You jump, you scream. And like that, it would just end with this open-ended conclusion. The kids were never seen again. And some say that that monster still roams these very woods.
And y'all, that was the worst part because this tale that began as a familiar, safe story that was about someone else, somewhere else, far away from your little campfire in the night is now suddenly about you here and now. If you've experienced these frightening stories, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Your imagination takes over. Wait, I'm in the woods. Was that a noise out there? Did I hear snapping of a twig? Is this story real? Is it about me? And they would just stick in my imagination for the rest of the night. I couldn't shake them. They would leave me with two options, you see. I could either try to forget the story, go to my tent, shut my eyes, repeat to myself, it's not real, it's just a story over and over and over again. Or I could just sit with it, scared, letting my imagination run wild, never going to sleep or to the bathroom for the rest of the night. And while I hate these campfire stories, I oddly respect them. They're so simple, yet so impactful. And they've helped me grasp something I used to find quite odd about Jesus. That is, sometimes when he taught about the most important truths about himself, his mission in the kingdom of God, he didn't give lectures with a PowerPoint like I would if I was trying to convey important information. Instead, he would often tell short, fictional stories called parables, familiar stories for many of us, like the prodigal son and the good Samaritan, often taught as kids' stories or these straightforward allegories with clear moral lessons like be nice to people or theological lessons, which seemed weird. Like, why not just be clear, Jesus, if it's really all that important? But I've come to believe that Jesus used parables for a reason. You see, I've come to see them as his version of these campfire stories, meant to invite us into the upside-down world and values of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Jesus got that stories have a unique ability to impact us by capturing our imagination, drawing us in, getting behind our defenses, and then through the unexpected, challenging us in those spaces we often try to hide and protect. Our deepest identities, values, and assumptions about ourselves and our world. See, what Jesus got was that the right stories told well impact and change us in ways that nothing else can. And that is what we will be exploring in our next series that we're calling Campfire Stories where we will spend weeks diving into how these parables of Jesus work and the world of the kingdom that they invite us into, allowing ourselves to become unfamiliar with often familiar stories so we can let them get past our defenses so they might provoke, challenge, and change us as Jesus, the master storyteller, intended. And y'all, I'm excited. I mean, I think these stories are transformative and I can't wait to dive into them. 
But before we begin, I want to lay out some ground rules, four parable ground rules that I want you to hold on to through this series. Because like campfire stories, the parables often have a design to them that we need to grasp onto if we want to get their meaning well. And these are all really interesting and they often change how we read them. See, the word parable is a combination of two Greek words, para, which means parallel, and then balo, to throw. And this sets up our first two ground rules. The first rule is this. Parables create parallels between things understandable to Jesus' audience and his announcement that the kingdom of God has arrived through him. This long-awaited moment that was the climax of the biblical story where God promised he would renew the hearts of his people and shape them to reflect him and his values in the world. Thus, the parables seek to connect this climactic moment, this world-changing moment, to something relatable, something that we can grasp onto so we can understand it a little better. It uses parallels. Second rule, parables are thrown to us to work through. They aren't lectures. Their primary purpose isn't to give us clear answers or clear information. No, their primary purpose is to make us wrestle, to ask questions. They're layered, mysterious, and open-ended. They're designed to come back to often, over and over again, each time finding new layers, questions, and implications. Thus, you have to understand that parables never have just one interpretation, and they're never meant to be simple. They're meant to make you wrestle. Third rule, the parables are universal and timeless in their truths, but their content is highly contextual. It's contextual to the larger biblical story because they use Old Testament images and themes often. It's contextual to where they fit within each gospel and what Jesus is speaking to in his present moment. And they're very contextual to the lives of Jesus's first century Jewish audience. Jesus doesn't talk about TVs, cars, and hedge fund managers. He talks about farming kings, banquets, norms, and tropes of his day. Thus, you have to remember this, if we take them out of the historical context, we risk misunderstanding them entirely. And finally, the fourth rule, the parables are meant to provoke us, and they're meant to demand a response when they end. You see, the parables aren't meant to be tame. If you are reading a parable and it doesn't provoke you, then you are reading it wrong. Like campfire stories, they use the unexpected to shock us at a surprising moment and thus make us respond to them, either by rejecting the challenge of the story or by sitting with it and thus being changed by it. I want you to keep those in mind because, y'all, there's going to be a quiz at the end of this series. So study up. Now, the first parable we're exploring in this series is a great example of how these work. It's called the parable of the workers in the vineyard from the gospel of Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse one. And Jesus has been teaching on the values of the kingdom, especially when it pertains to wealth so far in the recent sections of Matthew's gospel. And then he begins chapter 20 with this parable. He starts off for the kingdom of heaven is like, there's the parallel, ding, ding, a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. So you're a first century Jewish person. You came to hear Jesus teach. And then he begins with this story. And like any good campfire story, Jesus begins with something relatable to you. You see, many Israelites didn't own land. 
So they made a living as day laborers, working the fields and the land of wealthy landowners. And this captures how this everyday reality of a first century Israelite would have operated. Workers go to a marketplace in their town. A landowner comes through looking to hire workers and then he negotiates a wage with them. Here it says it's a Daenerys, which is simply a living wage. It's nothing extravagant. It's meant to say this isn't enough money for the workers to eat, to live off of. The landowner then hires who he needs. And if you read the text in Greek, it implies that he hires all the workers present. All of this is incredibly normal. Nothing strange so far. And there's also this trope at play that an Israelite would catch. You see, the Old Testament sometimes refers to God as a landowner and Israel, his people, as a vineyard. So there might be another layer, but you can't be sure yet. All that is to say this story is incredibly comfortable for his audience. It's about their everyday life and the stories they tell themselves about who they are. So you let your imagination draw you in and the story past your defenses. Jesus continues, about nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went, he went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. So the landowner returns hours later, apparently more workers have arrived. And again, he hires everyone. And then things start getting strange. He repeats this process three more times. The last time, just one hour before dark, before the end of the workday, 12 hours after the first workers were hired, each time hiring everyone present, which is a lot of people. Now, at this point in the story, as a first century Israelite, you should have questions. Questions like, where were these workers earlier? And why didn't someone else come through and hire them? But Jesus doesn't provide any explanations. And don't good managers know how much labor they need before starting a project that's this big, that needs this many people? But Jesus doesn't mention a need for more labor. He doesn't mention the project being bigger than the landowner expected. All he says is that the landowner just goes back over and over again, seeking and finding more workers, and then hiring everyone present and sending everyone he finds to his vineyard to work. Which leaves you with one of two conclusions. The landowner is incompetent and has no idea how many workers he needs, or he has another unknown agenda for hiring all these people. Your intrigue is building about this increasingly strange story with this mysterious landowner, with this unknown agenda. Jesus continues, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers in and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Now that's definitely not normal. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a Daenerys, the amount promised to the first workers. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, which seems fair, but each one of them also received a Daenerys. 
when they received it, they began to grumble or complain with resentment against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. So imagine you're in the audience. You've identified with the first workers hired because of course you have, because you have good work ethic. You worked hard all day. Your boss kept hiring new people who he didn't need, who arrive later and work way less than you. And then he pays them before you and equally to you. How are you feeling? Anyone else think they might be grumbling right now? At the very least, who's thinking that's not fair? Raise your hands. I know I am. You're provoked, right? I mean, this doesn't seem just at all. This doesn't seem right. Well, Jesus has you right where he wants you because here comes the turn, the point in the story where it stops being about someone somewhere else and starts being about you. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for Daenerys? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do with what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus asked us, did the landowner really treat them unfairly? No, he paid them exactly what he had promised them. And though they were paid last, he still clearly had enough to pay everyone. So the order doesn't really matter. So what is really producing their resentment in Jesus' story? It's not unfair treatment. They're resentful because they were treated as equals with people that they believe are less deserving than themselves. And in that mindset, what does fairness really mean to them? Simply that the others get less than they do. And remember, the Daenerys was not extravagant. It was just a living wage, enough to eat and live. So what's less than that? I mean, this is cruel. They resent the householder's generosity and lament the other workers' ability to live because they just want more than them. They call it fairness, but it's really a wounded sense of superiority, jealousy, greed, and selfishness. And the landowner calls them out. He says, if your complaint is just that I'm generous to everyone, if you're resentful over not having more than enough rather than other people not getting enough, then you, not the other workers, not the generous landowner, you are in the wrong. And I don't know about y'all, but I sure wish this 2,000-year-old story could speak to us today. And as an allegory, it's nice enough. God's kingdom invitation is open to everyone, and God's people mustn't resent this fact by believing that they're more deserving than the newcomers. But as a parable, I believe it's meant to go far deeper than that. You see, we aren't Israelite day laborers, but this is a universal and timeless story when you just start pulling back the layers. First, if God's the landowner, what does this parable teach us about his character and how he operates? And I notice a few things. 
First, God is not passively waiting for us to find him and earn our invitation into his kingdom. He is the one going out and seeking us out wherever we are, meeting us where we're at, inviting us in. And, and I think this is powerful, his love and his care is not divisible like ours, where some people get more or less based on what we think they deserve. We may ask the God of this parable, don't I deserve more love, affection, care than those people who are less deserving? And he's gonna respond to that question by saying, I don't understand your question at all. How could I divide infinite love unequally? I mean, this is the image of a God who is infinite and who infinitely pours out his love and care on everyone at all times. Thus, he has enough for everyone and he doesn't give more based on merit because you can't divide unequally what is universally and infinitely given. And that is a beautiful image of God. Am I right? Second, what if we find ourselves in the workers? Let's start with the last workers hired the ones who by our human standards of fairness don't deserve equal love and care from God. And I don't know about you, but I need this part. You see, I often feel unworthy of love, like I'm not good enough, like I haven't earned grace. But God says, I have chosen to be generous to everyone, which includes you, and that is my right. <sighs> this story tells me that we don't determine whether we or others are worthy of God's love, invitation, and care. He determines that, and he has chosen to gift it freely and equally no matter what. And that is good news if you're anything like me. But what if we find ourselves in the first workers hired too? And remember, if the parable doesn't provoke and challenge us, then we are reading it wrong. And finding ourselves and the first workers hired certainly does that for me. You see, like them, I often see my world through a lens of merit and scarcity, believing that my value is earned. And what gives me value, love, money, friends, respect, esteem, recognition, is scarce, that it's limited, that there's not enough for everyone. So what do I do? I try to find value through comparison to others. And someone always has what I don't or want more of, which means I'm never content, present, grateful, satisfied. I just want more. And y'all, jealousy and resentment festers towards anyone I perceive has what I lack. Because in that worldview, everything about who we are in our world is a zero-sum gain and anyone else's gain is my loss. And that mindset it makes me sick. I can't celebrate, much less provide for others, much less be concerned about whether they're eating or not because it's all about me getting mine. I mean, no wonder we cheat, steal, lie, abuse, grumble, resent, while telling ourselves that we're just trying to be fair. I mean, this parable nails me to the wall. But Jesus says, that's not how my kingdom works. 
Now, the God of this parable has enough for everyone, and his concern isn't what we think is fair. It's what he declares is right, which isn't me getting more than others. It's everyone getting enough. And in that, the parable challenges me. Where do you need to become more like the landowner in mindset, concern, priorities, behaviors, and less like this human world with its standards of fairness? And y'all, that preaches. See, it calls me to foster a mindset of abundance, not scarcity. To look at our lives and possessions as unearned gifts with gratitude and contentment. I think it challenges us to see that our lives as followers of Jesus aren't about getting more. They're about everyone getting enough. It calls us and challenges us to see where our greed has cost our neighbor the gift that God wants all to have, life, abundance, enough, and to repent from any kingdom with different values and priorities than the one of the landowner, the kingdom I've been graciously invited into. And finally, y'all, this parable reminds me that God's kingdom must produce action. The edge of this parable isn't in some lofty abstract idea. It's in its practicality. The parable shows us how God acts generously because it wants us to concretely act generously like he does here and now as we change our focus to mirror his from what we think is fair to what he thinks is right. To develop God-like generosity in our businesses and how we treat our other workers in our charitable giving, service, and lifestyle. Letting this parable reshape us to become people who live with enough and are generous with the rest, who are never content until everyone eats. To seek a kingdom where we work, not for more reward, but for the good of all. Everyone has enough. And that might be uncomfortable, as a 21st century American. But y'all, that's the point. Jesus wants us to feel the provocation and to respond to it by either going into our tents to forget the challenge of it or by sitting with it, wrestling with it, letting it reshape us to be more like God, the landowner, in Jesus' generous kingdom. This is the potential power of these campfire stories of the kingdom of God. But if we're going to find that power in this season, we have to let them turn everything upside down. We have to let them draw us in and let Jesus pass our defenses so he can provoke us to change. So as we go into this series, I challenge you to let these often familiar stories become unfamiliar, to let them Give us godly discomfort, not idolatrous comfort. To let us ask hard questions, not to look at them as a pathway to easy answers. To let them replace our kingdom and our story with this kingdom and this story, the kingdom of God and the story of Christ. And I think if we do that, I think if we do that, we're going to see that they'll do what they were created to do. Because I believe that these stories 
some of the best stories ever told, if we're willing to let them, will truly change us and who we are. So, where do you need to come to the campfire? Where do you need to sit down and hear a provocative story of Jesus? And where do you need to let that story behind your defenses so it can change you to look a little bit more like him? That's where we're going. That's what I invite you into. Amen.